And you see these little things, you know, suddenly your uh, travel expenses are not being paid. Uh, you know, your salary is late as an employee. And so you get the message, you know, that something is not working out. And so uh, it's obviously bad when you see it, but that's typically when it's already mostly too late because the problems and the issues, I think, came a lot earlier. Hi, and welcome to The Struggle, a production of the SaaS Revolution show and brought to you by SaaS Talk. I'm Irina Chambazova, and on this month's episode of The Struggle, I bring you the conversation Alex Thuma had with Joachim Klein, president of 3Kid. Originally from Germany, Joachim has been living in San Francisco for the past three years. 3Kid is Joachim's fourth foray in enterprise SaaS, a field he's fully subscribed to at this point. He started off his path in a company called Big Machines, the subject of the conversation he has with Alex. Joachim joined in September 2000 as EMEA MD, nine months after Big Machines had been started on January 1st, 2000. The startup helped manufacturing companies provide the best possible quotes for their, well, big machines. Joachim remembers the first year as particularly exhilarating. They were receiving a lot of interest from prospects, had many great conversations with them, and all in all, got a lot of praise for the problem they were tackling. On top of all that, they had raised 30 million in funding, so there was plenty of money in the bank. Bullish about the future of the company, Big Machines hired a lot of people that year, preparing for the demand they would get once these prospects became customers, so they could give them the best customer service possible. Sounds great, doesn't it? This wouldn't be an episode of the struggle if Big Machines lived happily ever after, would it? They ran out of money before they had sold anything. On the verge of bankruptcy, Big Machines was forced to lay off 70% of its workforce. Joachim lost his entire team. One night during this rocky period, Joachim's wife asked him, Would you invest in Big Machines right now? Joachim admitted, No, I wouldn't put even $100 in it. The company's dead. The company didn't die, and instead eventually got acquired by Oracle but not before a major turnaround achieved thanks to a lot of self-reflection, change, and learning how to sell. That's the story of this episode of The Struggle. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome to The Struggle, Joachim Klein, President and CEO of 3Kit. Welcome, Joachim. Thank you, Alex. Nice to be here. Good to have you. As uh, say, the, the audience don't have the pleasure of seeing the video uh, at the moment, but uh, we were just saying that you, you you threw me a little bit by, I was thinking that you were standing by the Golden Gate Bridge, but uh, it seems technology teleported you there, but it's, it's not actually the case. Uh, well, absolutely. I am in San Francisco. Uh, I, I live oh. in San Francisco, but I have the Golden Gate Bridge as a virtual background. And obviously, you know, 3Kit, the company I'm working for, we're in the visualization space. Uh, so visual is very important to us. So we want to make sure, you know, everybody has a good visual experience. And I hope that you like the Golden Gate Bridge uh, behind me. Uh, but I'm actually in my, 
in my apartment. So unfortunately, I'm not at the Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah, no, no, big, big fan of the Golden Gate Bridge and I've been to San Francisco uh, a few times. In fact, actually, um, uh, I know you didn't set me up for this so by putting the picture up there, but we have a conference in San Francisco in September the 11th. The so Sastock West Coast is, uh, is happening there. So uh, if you're available on that day, um, it'd be good to have you join us. Let's uh, find out just a little bit about you. Who is uh, Jochen Klein? So I'm president of 3Kit. Uh, right now, 3Kit is a visualization platform. So it's a tool that allows companies to create better and more engaging product experiences online. Uh, so typically today, you just have a static, you know, in some cases, boring image of a product. And I think what we want to do is make that more immersive, make it more fun to uh, shop online. Uh, so we have a customer here in the, in the US, for example, Crate & Barrel, uh, who sell furniture, and they use us to create all of their digital images, uh, which is a great way for them to save cost uh, versus studio photography. Uh, they also use it for their website. Uh, they use it or use us, 3Kid, for their visual configurator. So if you want to figure out what exactly your couch looks like, what the color of the fabric is, what types of legs you want to have. You can all do this visually in our configurator. And lastly, you can also use our configurator and our solution for augmented reality. So you can see in the Crate and Barrel example, how does the sofa fit into my living room? And so that's what 3Kit does. Um, it's uh, my uh, fourth uh, enterprise SaaS company. Um, so I am uh, uh, definitely uh, enjoying SaaS. I, I love uh, software as a services. Um, started uh, with it, uh, you know, about um, in, in the year 2000 with a company called Big Machines. Uh, was GM of EMEA. Um, as you have figured out by now, I'm German uh, originally. Um, and so ran uh, the EMEA region for big machines, uh, which was then acquired by Oracle. And I left for, for a cool new startup called Steelbrick, uh, which I joined as COO, um, did this for two years, and then we were acquired by Salesforce. And so the last three years I was at Salesforce, um, ran customer success and uh, product management uh, for our product, um, and then joined uh, this uh, new exciting uh, startup called Tricket uh, last uh, November. And so that's kind of like what I do professionally. Personally, as I said, you know, I live in San Francisco, I have two kids, and I'm originally German. How long, um, how long have you lived in uh, SF? Uh, three years now. So it's uh, okay. relatively, uh, yeah, we're still relatively new here. Um, but yeah, look, the, the, the CV, so as you said, like 14 years, and uh, you listed, you know, Salesforce, obviously Steelbrick, that, that was the, 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 the company that Salesforce uh, acquired, um, you know, and uh, I think Oracle and uh, and so forth. So um, you have as what we what we call SaaS chops. Um, uh, there's a, you know, it's a a very good CV in there. For like what we want to do is go right back, um, you know, to the big machines kind of experience and like focus on this as to when you were GM uh, of EMEA for, for for big machines. So what did big machines do? So the idea of Big Machines was really to help companies in the sales process. Uh, so it's a typical startup in sales. 
uh, focused particularly on manufacturing companies. That's where the name comes from. So uh, as a, you know, obviously American company, so it has to be big. So it has the big end machines. So we did manufacturing uh, and particularly the quoting process. So we try to help companies in manufacturing uh, with the quoting process. Uh, if you have a manufacturer today, uh, most of them still today uh, have a manual process, how they create their quotes. So they go in and size and select the product, they configure the product, they price the product, and then they finally they create a proposal. And this is a very manual process uh, that uh, creates lots of errors in on, on the way. And so I think what Big Machines did and, and does today, this, the company is still alive uh, through Oracle, is help companies in that process and automate the process, take the errors out, and therefore create a great business value for, for, for our customers. Awesome. And, and so obviously, as we, we, we know, and, um, you know, being uh, corresponding, um, you know, online before the, the podcast that, uh, you know, whilst there was a, a, an exit by none other than, than Oracle, which, you know, so many uh, will view uh, as a, a successful outcome, uh, it, there were pretty difficult times, you know, as, as well during big machines, which actually I think, you know, I think probably many startups, they all share these difficult times, right? But uh, again, you're, you're, you're happy to kind of, you know, uh, discuss this and, uh, and share those kind of lessons with us. So at what point did you come in as GM of EMEA? Yeah, so the company was uh, started officially January 1, 2000. Um, and I joined in September, so I was not kind of like the one that was the initial group, but I was very early considering the, the 13 years the company went uh, alone until then being acquired. So I was early, but not the first one. It was a venture-backed company, so raised sort of roughly $30 million um, in, in funding. Early days, tell me about those. How long were things going well? I think they went well the whole year of 2000, really. Uh, you know, I think uh, it was good in the sense like you saw interest in the product. You talk to customers, you talk to interesting companies, big companies who suddenly saw like, well, this is, an, uh, you know, you're solving a big problem for us. Um, and so I think we were kind of like all in that atmosphere of like, oh, things are looking great. You know, like this is going somewhere. And then when you have a lot of money, you also kind of, I think you think about like, Oh boy, you know, like if all of these companies that we are talking to now sign a deal, how are we going to support this? So we have to hire more people. We have to scale. And so I think throughout the year 2000, you know, there's, there's been a lot of uh, hype. There's a lot of uh, excitement, uh, you know, a lot of things that we did, you know, customer conferences and everything. Uh, and then I think, you know, we were all kind of geared up for scaling. I think the original business plan said, you know, we would be whatever, 100 people uh, by the end of 2000 and then 2000 people by the end uh, a year later. And so it was all in that atmosphere of like scaling uh, tremendously. Um, but then, you know, towards the end of the year, we found out that money was running out and there was no other investor who was willing to uh, give us more money. And you see these little things, you know, suddenly your uh, travel expenses are not being paid. Uh, you know, your salary is laid as an employee. And so you get the message, you know, that something is not working out. And so uh, it's obviously bad when you see it, but that's typically when it's already mostly too late because the problems and the issues, I think, came a lot earlier. And, you know, when, when you reflect back, it's, you know, one of the things that um, we, you know, the, the, the error we made or kind of like where we didn't have the experience yet how to do something like this because this was the first startup for almost all of us. I think one of the things we were super confident and scaled the company like it was set up for success and we had product market fit. 
Turns out we didn't have product market fit. Turned out that a lot of those companies we were talking to that were excited, they were generally excited, but they also wanted to be educated on a new thing that's in the market, but they were not necessarily there to sign a contract. They did not have budget, so they did not sign anything. So we scaled before we were um, really ready for it. And secondly, I think the, the issue that we had is we had never sold software before. And we, most of us had never sold anything before. I think we had a great team, you know, like amazing talent, you know, uh, you had a lot of MBAs from top schools, but nobody had really sold anything before. And, you know, this is, you know, what they do not teach you at Harvard Business School, right? They tell you about strategy, they tell you about marketing, but nobody tells you how, how do you sell. And so I think these were our main issues, scaling too early, not being able to sell. And that's kind of like what got things into, into trouble. You said you were running out of cash. Uh, the VCs didn't want to invest anymore. You had like how many employees? A uh, hundred plus, something like that? It was around a hundred at the time, yeah. Didn't say no. They said like, hmm, let's maybe wait. Let's see how this plays out. What happened? Did you run out of cash? Like how did you, how did you solve the problems that you were facing? Yeah, so we did run out of cash, but the original uh, family and the founder, Godot Abel, his family had originally a pump company. That's where the original idea came from because they saw firsthand the, the problems of industrial manufacturers. And so Godot and his family basically put money down, uh, made a number of uh, big changes in the company in terms of letting people go, changing direction, changing course, but injecting money. And then without money and I think a better plan of kind of how we would go on, uh, we secured an investment by a VC firm uh, called Vista Equity Partners uh, that is today a private equity company. This was one of their very, very early investments uh, where they were still more on the venture route. Um, and they invested uh, literally in March, so three or four months after uh, we had almost gone under. And so, it, again, it gives you an idea of like uh, we were in talks with VCs before, but only once they are confident that somebody will actually step in, put their own money down and make changes, then they're also willing to invest. I didn't realize this, but the penny sort of dropped. You mentioned Goddard Abel, who's now founder of G2 Crowd, right? Is that the same Goddard Abel? Correct. Correct. Yeah. yeah. The original founder of Big Machines. We yeah. did Steelbrick together and, uh, you know, 3Kid, he is now executive chairman of 3Kid as well. So. Thanks for clarifying that. You mentioned there, there were changes that were made because of the lack of cash in the bank and the 100-person company. Was it sort of roughly 70% of the workforce that were, were let go? Pretty much, yeah. I can imagine that's like not a nice experience. What do you care to kind of share just around that? It's bad. You know, of course it's bad. You know, you suddenly see people that you've worked with uh, that are not there anymore. And so I think it's personally a bad experience. At the same time, I think you have to get yourself to a somewhat rational level to say like, well, if you don't do it, the company has no chance of surviving. And so it's something that you have to do. And I think in that moment, I think <clears throat> you do look back and say like, well, now is not the problem. The problem happened a lot many months before, but we didn't figure out those things. We scaled too early. We didn't have really the sales experience. And so when you look at this time, you know, I think what I would say what happened to me personally is that uh, you obviously you ask yourself, you know, like, what do you want to do in this? You know, is that the right thing for you? And I obviously made the decision, you know, it is the right thing for me. Uh, but I think, you know, there's a lot of other things that are happening uh, where you then <clears throat> feel bad. Uh, you know, I hired a person myself and I had to let him go before uh, he could actually start his job and things like that uh, that have an impact on you, not only in the 
in this specific situation, but also longer term. So even when I make a hire today that is more of a risk, I think back to the experience and think like, wow, is that and are we hiring too early? Should we maybe wait until we have the customer signed up? And so I think a lot of those things still kind of stick in your mind from those days. You know, part of the challenge was that you guys didn't know how to sell. You weren't taught how to sell. You were clearly very smart, but didn't have those essential kind of sales skills. So how did you address that problem? Well, we did a number of things. I mean, one is we hired more experienced salespeople. So it was very obvious, you know, we did not have salespeople who had done this for years and years. Uh, We went a little, um, I think, again, uh, we didn't go right to, I think, where we are today. Uh, We thought, well, if we're in industrial manufacturing, we should hire industrial manufacturing salespeople. And so we hired people who had pump sales experience, compressor sales experience. Turned out that it didn't really go that well, that path either. Uh, But we got a few deals. um, And then I think longer term, we figured out, well, we need software salespeople. So people really who understand how to sell software, uh, ideally, even, you know, software as a service salespeople. Um, And then later on, I think as we went through a lot of those experiences, I think we put together a sales playbook, you know, how do you sell? A solution like ours and that's a playbook we've been using at, at Steelbrick and again at 3kit now and it's something i think that helped us you know scale those companies tremendously vista equity came in once a lot of these changes in the family money had been put in you obviously probably know better than i but when a company is having challenges is in trouble is laying off staff you would feel like the natural reaction would be, well, surely this would be like red flag signs and to VCs and that, you know, putting money in would be a massive risk. Why, why do you think they, they put money in at this time where it was a, you know, a bit of a crisis of big machines? I think they saw, they talked to customers. We had at the time, I don't know the exact number anymore, but it must have been between 10 and 20 customers. And so I think they could see um, what the results were that those customers would get. Uh, so you could easily see that somebody who uses a system for quoting uh, that before um, had, you know, let's, let's uh, say, you know, like uh, their cost were uh, for creating this quote, $100. Uh, then today with using big machines, it was like half of that. And so I think those VCs and investors and angel investors, they saw kind of what amazing opportunity there is. I think they saw that there was not many others who did this. And uh, so there was a market need. It was just like an execution problem. And so I think they said, we can help with the execution, uh, but as long as the product is good and the idea and the market fit is there, then you know, like, let's, uh, let's take this forward. When asked by your wife whether you would invest any money in big machines uh, after that, you, you said no. Uh, why were you of a differing opinion to, to Vista? <laughs> well, my wife asked me at late 2000. So it was like around uh, Christmas uh, 2000 when she's like, do you think, you know, would you invest money in big machines right now? And I said no at the time because, well, uh, my travel expense had not been paid. My money, my salary had not been paid. Uh, I was like, I think in, in finance, you would t- would say we I had a high risk exposure uh, at that point in time. And so even putting more money in didn't feel like a very diligent idea. Um, so I think that was the main reason to do it. I think, you know, as obviously, uh, you know, in these cases, you know, when you see something like that happening, I think I still, similar to, I think, a lot of others of us who stayed on, believed in the fundamental concept, the fundamental idea behind it. But, you know, none of us really knew, like, are the steps we're taking, will they help us? Will they make us survive? Will they enable us to continue? 
And you know, like when you look at the story overall, we started in 2000. And when you look at kind of like the company, then step by step, we grew, we learned, and we had a lot of learning experiences. But when you look at really took off, maybe in 2005, 2006. So there's another five years of investment where we didn't feel like we were just sitting around and doing nothing. We did a lot. We talked to customers. We signed up customers. But it was not a time until like, you know, about five years later until it really took off. And I think at that point, uh, you know, looking back, you have a different perspective and say like, wow, five years is a long time uh, until the, the company really takes off. A great first year, major crisis, like towards the end of the first year to run, run out of cash. And again, everybody's kind of seen this and heard this story within startups, right? Um, you know, whether it's one year or two or, or earlier, you stabilize after five years, things are really kind of taking off. At what point did Oracle start kicking the tires and knocking on the on the door to acquire you? I think I, I would say it was fairly, fairly a surprise. I think similar to what my experience has also been at Steelbrick. You know, Steelbrick, we were um, going for one and a half years. Suddenly, Salesforce approached us. Um, and so I think in both of those cases, more of surprise. I think we've always been, you know, partners of Oracle. We've been partners of Salesforce um, in big machines, uh, in Steelbrick only with Salesforce. Um, but uh, so we've been always been close to those companies uh, in big machines. Actually, uh, Salesforce was an investor. Um, and so I think the thought uh, was more like, well, maybe Salesforce at some point would buy big machines. And then suddenly Oracle came in and uh, and acquired uh, the company. And so I think it's one of those things, you know, I think when you start a company and when you, you know, you're young, uh, people often dream about like, yeah, being acquired and think about like who can potentially acquire us. And I wouldn't spend too much time about it because I think, at least in my experience, it's been total surprises. Uh, the timing when it came, you know, you could say like, well, it, you know, there, it's some rationale of why it happened. But uh, the moment it happens, very difficult to predict. And I think people have spent a lot of time thinking about this or maybe changing the way they sell or changing who they're selling to or who they're partnering with. And it's, uh, I think it has to fit on both sides. It has to fit on the, uh, on the big customer company side and it has to fit on the uh, on the startup side. And I've seen a little bit, you know, working at Salesforce, um, you know, there's, it's an interesting phenomena that it also has to be the right size, right? If you have companies suddenly growing too big, they become so big that they might not be attractive to be uh, acquired by a Salesforce or an Oracle. And so there are a few examples who have built their companies almost, you know, like, hey, you know, like acquire me, acquire me. Um, and it doesn't happen. They continue to grow. They and do private rounds and, and suddenly they're out there and, you know, it's IPO, which is not a bad thing. But I think uh, some of those companies think too much about it from, from, from what I'm, for, for where I'm coming from. Um, during the hard times at Big Machines, did you ever feel like giving up? How was the motivation? I think it was good. You know, I think it's something, again, in hindsight, maybe I would say like, well, I was maybe a little naive at the time. Uh, but there were two things, two factors to it. One was we had and continue to have great meetings with customers. When you heard the feedback from the customers, they were like, yes, that's exactly what we need. You're solving a problem we are having. I think we're still not good and we only got better over the years how to put this into sales contracts. And the second thing was the team. Um, I very much enjoyed working with the, the whole team at Big Machines, uh, in particular Goda, to, who's been my boss, you know, ever since I started with Big Machines. And I'm still working with him today, you know, like almost 20 years later. And so I think those two things together, you see like, oh, there is a path. We're trying to figure it out together. There seem to be customers who are genuinely interested. We just have to get our things done in terms of the product, the positioning, the selling, 
and then this can be a great success. So I didn't feel like giving up, but you know, for sure, at the point of those, you know, layoffs and the challenges, I think we definitely all of us thought through like, what do we have to do differently? What's what's gonna take it for us to make this a great success? Can you identify any kind of key lessons that you've learned from that time that really have shaped your approach to work through these other businesses to right through to three kits uh, today? Absolutely. I think, you know, the one thing that you learn in difficult times is it's all about the team. It's the people uh, that that make the big difference. And obviously, you know, it's uh, trivial to say it, but I think often it's forgotten because you think about customers, you think about uh, the product, you think about so many things, but at the end of the day, it's really the team. And so I think lesson one for me was be upfront with the team. And I think make sure that everybody knows where you are. And so, you know, to give you a three-kit example, uh, we do monthly all hands with everybody and we share everything, including our aggregated financials. Now, we're not sharing kind of what exactly, how much did this and this cost, but if people ask, we're very open and sharing kind of like, so everybody knows where we are as a company, what our challenges are, what our successes are, so that everybody has a good view on where we are. And I think it's important because nobody should be surprised if you are hitting difficult times. And then everybody is also willing to say like, okay, I put in the extra hour, I do this, I go the extra mile, because I also know these guys are upfront, they're honest with me, and what they tell me is actually what's really happening. I think that's kind of like was my lesson one. I think the second lesson that's something... Um, drove in the period after you know you know we've had this crisis at big machines was i think we had to find the mechanism and we were struggling with that for for a few years until we found this uh, you know salesforce uh, methodology but you have to find a mechanism that everybody in the company you know somehow goes into the same direction and uh, it's it's a tricky one because in startups there's so many opportunities we see it with three kid now we have not a lack of opportunities we have too many opportunities which are the ones that we're going to after where do we double down on which one of those do we not do consciously and so we've been you know fortunate enough to come across this methodology that salesforce uses called v2mom uh, v2mom stands for vision values uh, methods obstacles and measures and it is you know the the pure a document is nothing but, you know, like, what is it that we want to do in the next year? But the process makes the big difference. It's not about the content. It's the process. Because the way we do it at 3Kid, and we've, again, copied it from Salesforce, is I would write the initial draft of a V2Mom. I give it to the management team who try to shoot holes into it, try to question it, try to change it, edit it. And we take this and present it to the full company, everybody. We invite everybody. And then have people in groups of five to six people basically take on specific methods and try again to criticize, to provide input, to adjust, to add to it. And so that at the end of the day, it takes about a day to do this. Uh, at the end of the day, everybody knows like where is the company going? What are we trying to do? And everybody has had a chance to provide their input of why they think this is a great idea and this might not be a good idea. And so from that feedback session, you then actually change the final V2MOM that is for the company. And then again, it trickles down. Everybody creates their own. And it's an amazing process that, again, it's not so much about what's in it, but it's more like how do you make sure everybody is aligned and everybody runs in the same direction? Uh, because as a startup company, that's so key. If you don't do this, you're very quickly struggling a lot.
I'm sure there's a lot of uh, nodding heads uh, on trains and in cars for, for the folks that are listening to this podcast. That's a perfect place to end the show there. We've uh, gone through the journey of Big Machine, seeing where the struggles were and how they were o- overcome and uh, the key lessons and processes to put in place that can really help a startup scale and succeed. So really appreciate you sharing these lessons with us uh, uh, today, Joachim. It's much appreciated. Thank you, Alex. It was a pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Struggle with Joachim Klein. We got to hear his story because he reached out to us with it. If you can be as honest and open as Joachim or any of the other guests we have hosted on The Struggle, get in touch and send us your story on podcast at sastalk.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.